can uh, open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And I just want to read our text for us here this morning. Uh, We'll be looking at at verses uh, 24 through 32 of Romans chapter 1. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural desires for those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up their natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. We're still dealing with the theme of God's wrath, God's divine wrath against sin. And today we're seeing man's rebellion against God. Some years ago, there was a pastor in Switzerland. He was preaching to his congregation on this text. And he began, began his message like this. He says, In the words that we have just read, we are told the whole truth about our condition. There may well be people among us who cannot bear to hear the truth and would like to creep quietly away out of the church. Let them do so if they wish. (laughs) There's much justification for this pastor's words because these words, these verses that the Apostle Paul under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit penned are difficult to really think about, to contemplate. Um, There's really not a ray of light among them if you look at them. It's all dark, it's somber, black as midnight, filled with a roll of thunder. The passage has for its theme the judgment of God upon what we would say a world gone mad with sin. And when we read these verses, we really, if we're not careful, we have a temptation to think, well, that's the people that are not here this morning. That's who he's talking about. But when we read these verses, we really come face to face with our true condition, every one of us. Uh, Many of us would rather not think that way, but that's true. Um, I can't blame you if you'd rather be somebody else, somewhere else this morning rather than listen to this message. Um, to be honest, I'd probably be somewhere else if I could, <laughs> uh, preaching another message or doing something other than covering this text. Um, Donald 
Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse said this about this text. It's the most terrible passage in all the Bible. If you know anything about him, he's a faithful teacher for years, wonderful man of God. Uh, That in itself is a pretty incredible claim, the most terrible passage in the Bible. Um, When you think of how much the Bible deals with the judgment of sin on mankind, we saw that last week a little bit. But as I looked at this and studied this this week, I really believe that what he said is true. This probably is the most terrible, most awesome, most shocking passage in the entire Bible. There was one pastor, when he was studying this text, he decided to write his own kind of paraphrase of this text. But he turned it around and he made it a positive reading, not a negative reading. Kind of interesting. I just want to read that for you. Same verses that we just read with kind of a positiveness to it. Therefore, God gave them over in their hearts to self-control and purity, that their bodies might be honored among them. For they kept and cherished the truth of God, and worshipped and served the Creator, who is blessed forever, rather than the, the creature. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to pure and wholesome lives, lived with carefree ease, even in the most intimate relations, so that all received in their own persons the due reward of their fidelity. And just as they saw fit to acknowledge God in all things, God gave them over to a sound mind to do those things which are proper, being filled with all righteousness, goodness, generosity, kindness, full of selflessness, life, healing, openness, kindliness. They are gentle in speech, always building others up, lovers of God, respectful, humble, self-effacing, inventors of good, obedient to parents, understanding, trustworthy, loving, merciful. And as they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are the possessors of life, they do the same and give hearty approval to those who do likewise. Pretty neat how he did that. There was a Lord Russell that basically was speaking against the Christian faith and speaking against the idea that men are sinful, speaking against the idea that God is angry at sin. And he wrote this in his little book he called, Why I Am Not a Christian. He said, there is one serious defect in the mind to my mind, in Christ's moral character, and that is that he believed in hell. Obviously, this guy's not a believer. I do not myself feel that any person who is really profoundly human can believe in everlasting punishment. Christ certainly has depicted in the Gospels, as it was depicted in the Gospels, did believe in everlasting punishment. And one does find repeatedly a vindictive fury against those people who would not listen to his preaching. You do not, for instance, find that attitude in Socrates. You find him quite bland and urbane toward the people who would not listen to him. 
And it is, to my mind, far more worthy of a sage to take that line than to take the line of indignation. Why do I read that to you? Because I want you to understand the idea of a wrathful God, of an angry God, of a God that would judge the world is offensive to most people today. They don't want to hear that. Um, Any who are sympathetic to some of the thinking just expressed that was just expressed in that man's writing basically don't want to look at a text that we're going to look at this morning. And the only help I can give you is it's a Spirit's message given through the Apostle Paul to the Church of Rome and to us. And it's part of God's Word. And so we are going to go through this this morning. But in this passage, I think we find the, the result of not just God's wrath, but the result of man's rebellion against God. Um, as you look down over the text here, you look in verse 24, it says, Therefore God gave them up. Down in verse 26, it says, For this reason God gave them up. Down in verse 28, it says, God gave them up. It's an interesting Greek word that makes up that phrase, gave them up. Um, these Phrases God gave them up over and over again here in the text tell us that there's a limit. There's a limit to the patient and the long-suffering of God. There is a limit. And as we study these verses, it's going to become apparent that when man makes his choice to abandon God, God will also choose to abandon man. That's a very sobering thought when you think about it. The King James Version reads this, God gave them up. Barclay renders it, God abandoned them. J.B. Phillips says, they gave up God, and so God gave them up. (laughs) It's a very strong word. It basically means that the act of God whereby he hands over the human race for judgment because of their sins. Hands them over. Guilty as charged. And in this passage, Paul is telling us what happens when men turn away from God. When men lose God, they always, count my words, always lose themselves. It's as if God said, all right, you want to turn away from me? Go ahead. I'll let you go. I won't try to stop you. But you know what? One day you're going to have to face the consequences for your actions. Actions have consequences, by the way. Things aren't in life aren't always figured out in 30 minutes in a sitcom. <laughs> that's the world we live in. Everything just kind of resolves itself. Well, that's not true in real life. Uh, we're surrounded, beloved, by millions of people who have really abandoned to the lifestyle they have chosen over the God that created them. And a lot of these people are capable of any sin imaginable. It tells us right in our text, they are inventors of evil. We're going to go over that, what that, what that means. The truth is there are people we all know who are living a life that exists under the shadow 
of their result of their their, uh, abandonment of God and his subsequent abandonment of them. And with that in mind, I want to look at these verses and understand a little bit more about the result of man's rebellion. Um, Last week, we looked at basically the idea of God's wrath and what that all involved. And we can understand that God is a wrathful God. He's a loving God, but he's also wrathful. He's also angry against sin. He doesn't create himself just to be some lovey-dovey little fuzzball that doesn't ever get angry at anything and doesn't ever judge anything. He just loves everybody. That's not the God who created us. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God that we serve. And so this morning, with that in in mind, this morning I want us to just kind of remind ourselves that God is at a place in our society where I think we are very, very, very close if close if we haven't already arrived where God has turned his back on our country. I really believe that simply because of all the stuff that's going on. You know, you say, well, God bless America. My question is, how could he? How could God possibly bless a country that has come and fallen so far, so quickly? I mean, yes, this country was founded on Christian principles. It was founded by a majority of of believers even. And I'm not saying they were all Christians, but they definitely held to the Judeo-Christian ethic. You look at our law, you look at everything around us in our government, it was founded there. That's why you can go to Washington, D.C. and see the name of God everywhere. (laughs) But last week, as we looked at the rebellion toward God and, and man's revelation of God, how we're all accountable because all we have to do is look around and see the creation And we saw man's rejection of God because God has revealed his wrath from the heavens against all ungodliness, it told us in verse 18. Verse 19 says, what can be known about God is plain to them. You have to be pretty creative to come up with your own plan how everything got here. And that's what they've done. And then they reject the God that created them. In verse 20, it says they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and foolish, their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. Because of all that, that's where we find ourselves today. That's why it says in verse 24, Therefore, God gave them up. His patience ran out. The first thing we see here is, what's the substance of this man's sinful rebellion in verse 24 to 25? It's based basically on sinful choices. Man chooses sin over God because sin is bound up in his heart. 
It's not something that, you know, they just wake up one day and say, okay, I guess I'll just try to be better, or I guess I'll try to be worse. We have to understand our sinful condition before a holy God. In Matthew chapter 15, it begins to unravel the traditions and the the commandments of God. And in verses 19 to 20, for out of the heart comes what? Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defiles a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. See, we're so good at looking at the outside and putting on a good, kind of a, a good uh, show for people. You know, we come to church, we sit in our little seat, and we open our Bible and take notes, and boy, everything's happy, happy, happy in Jesus. If people could really see into the dark recesses of our own heart and what we were going through even now as we're here this morning, we'd probably be horrified. Sin is not something we do, beloved. Sin is something we are. (laughs) We are sinful people. You can't just relegate it to a list of things you do or you don't do. Um, that's the danger of our churches today is they have a little list of good things and a little list of bad things. And if you do more good things than bad things, then you're considered a spiritual person. In James chapter 1 verse 14 It says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desire. His own desire. That's something that's already there. Just look at your children. You don't have to teach your children to be bad. They're bad in and of themselves. You know, you don't have to teach them not to share their toys. They're not going to share their toys. They're selfish. They're little savages. I mean, that's what they are. I mean, they're cute, don't get me wrong. (laughs) Lovely little bundles of joy. But they can also be pretty feisty little critters too. And you got to stop and you got to think, well, why are they that way? It's because sin is in their heart. You don't have to teach them that. It's based in sinful choices. That's what it says there in verse 24. Of Romans. Therefore, God gave them up, what? In the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. They basically did things that God basically says that we should not do. And yet, that's exactly what they give their hearty approval to based on their choice. The more a man seeks to honor himself by exalting his will over that of God, the more dishonorable he becomes. That's just the way it works. When he chooses sin over a relationship with the living God, his sinful nature grows even more corrupt. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22... 
We're told there to put off your old self, talking to believers. Put off the old self. And then it says, which belongs to your former manner of life. In other words, once you come to Christ, there should be a transformation in your life. There should be something different. You've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And we should see that light in your life. I often told young people, when I was a youth pastor... No change, no Jesus. No Jesus, no change. That's great. You had some experience up on the hilltop with your friends and went forward and committed your life to Christ. That's great. You did that. But did it change you? (laughs) Not just for the night, not just for the week. God doesn't save us for a couple weeks and then just let us go. No, once he saves us, we're his forevermore. And he will continue to do that work in and through us, sometimes whether we cooperate or not. Sometimes he has to discipline us, like a loving father would discipline a child, because we're not listening. But it tells us in Ephesians that we should put off your old self, like an old pair of clothes. Put them off. They're dirty. Get rid of them. Which belongs to your former manner of life. How did you live before you were a believer? What made up your life? What desires did you do? Some of you probably were maybe deep into the drug culture or or deeply addicted to alcohol or whatever, and God transformed your life miraculously. Others of you may have been raised in a Christian home. Maybe you haven't gone to that depth. But it doesn't matter. Because we're all sinful. We all need the same salvation from God. It doesn't matter what you do or what you have done. Everything that made up our former life in Christ, what should be put off? That's what he's saying. And then he says, and in in, in Ephesians 4.22, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. It's corrupt. That word... Corrupt is basically in the, the, what you say, the the present tense, it's corrupting. It's ongoing. The whole character representing the former self is not only corrupt, but it is growing more and more corrupt each day we live. Every trait of that old man's behavior is crumbling. It's rotting. It's a corpse. It stinks. We need to dispose of it, forget it forever. And that is true about natural man. And so he points that out in verse 24. He says, because of all this, God gave them up to the lusts of their own hearts to impurity. To dishonor, the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves. Bad choice. Sinful choice. And that leads to verse 25, based in sinful changes. Since man refuses to live by God's truth, he invents his own law. The result is that man also invents his own gods. The chief god of all man is himself, basically. God calls this behavior the exchange of a truth for a lie. In other words, man 
trades that which is living, that which is given by God, helpful and vital, for that which is dead, (laughs) harmful and vain. Why do we do this, you might ask? Why would somebody make a trade like that? It doesn't make sense. Because we still possess an overwhelming desire to worship. So he needs a God that will condone his sinful behavior. And he knows that's not the God of the Bible, so they create a God of their own. Maybe it's themselves. They worship themselves and their own invented gods. That's what it says, because they exchange the truth about God for a lie. What's the truth about God? That he's holy, that he's loving, that he's pure. That he wants what's best for us. See, if you, if you can't buy into the attributes of God, if you don't understand what the attributes of God are, then you don't understand who God is. I talked to one pastor, lady in a very liberal church. She mentioned that we don't study theology. I said, really? You have a problem with theology? Wow, it's just... It's old-fashioned. We don't, you know, we don't do that. I said, "What do you do?" Well, we 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 study sociology. We want people to get along, and we want this. We don't we don't need to study theology. And I said, "Well, how would you define theology?" Well, it's just you know all that stuff about God. I said, "So you're a pastor in a church, and you're telling me you don't want to study about God." kind of telling of our society today. You can go to a lot of churches and not hear the truth of God's word taught. And the reason is is because they don't want to deal with it. They don't want to be judgmental. They don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to offend people either, but God's word sometimes is offensive. The cross is a stumbling block. And so the, the most dangerous thing we can do is try to fix all that and, and make the message kind of easygoing and just kind of let it fall by the wayside and not offend anybody because we've taken all the offending parts of it out. God doesn't do that. God tells us the truth. And he says, you know what? I just gave them up to the lust of their own hearts to impurity, that which is not pure to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. See, our body is is to be honored. It's, It's to be the temple of the Spirit. We're to take care of it. You know, we probably more of us than not need to take better care of our bodies, myself included. But I've seen people that even take that whole concept too far. And basically, they live for their body. <laughs> you know, they're, they're the whole youthful, you know, they want to be youthful when they look 70. So they spend all their resources trying to look young. It's like, you know, you can spend all the money you want. Eventually, you're going to get wrinkles. Eventually, your body's going to break down. And eventually, people are going to stand, be standing over a grave saying, what a nice person you are because you're dead. That's going to happen to every one of us pending the Lord's return. Nothing's going to change that. I don't care how many vitamins you take, how many times you go to the gym, all those things. That's 
the end of ourselves. But we don't want to believe that. And so they, here they gave their hearts to impurity and dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And it says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. I mean, if that's not basically telling of the, of the, the, the day and age we live in today when people are more, um, get more fired up about somebody cutting a tree down in their backyard versus killing an unborn baby, uh, we got problems. Or cutting off farmers' water over in the valley because of some stupid little fish somewhere. So they'd rather, you know, let people starve to death but save the little tadpole or whatever it is up there. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's like everything is backwards. Everything is upside down. That's the day and age we live in. And we have to stop and we have to say, wow, why is this going on? You can do a study. We don't have time to do it this morning, but you can do a study in our history of our nation from the time they began to take the, 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 the Bible and prayer out of, out of the public schools. And you see the morals just fall off like a cliff right down to the sewer. And now we have problems with even the mention of God somewhere. That's the, the society we live in because they exchanged the truth about God. They made up their own lies about God, but they exchanged the truth for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And Paul here just gets so overwhelmed. He says, who is blessed forever. Amen. It's like he's not done. He just can't contain himself. Man's sinful rebellion against God is very real. And he says in verse 26 how this kind of plays out. What's the symbol of man's rebellion? Verse 26 to 27, he kind of explains himself. He says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Ties back that they, they basically gave their bodies over to dishonoring things. And then he goes on to explain it. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. I mean, there's a lot here. But you can see here where man's attractions are sickening. They're sickening to God and they should be sickening to us. He basically describes here the absolute bottom of the pit of iniquity. And the idea here basically is, is that this is where societies end up when they choose their own way over God's ways. You can, you can look at secular history and see that. It's been the case in every major society throughout history. And we see here this trend even in America today. Man's attractions are sickening. He kind of describes for us here the sin of homosexuality. 
and yeah, it is a sin. It's not a lifestyle. It's a sin. It's a choice. He uses it as a way to depict the absolute depths of depravity. I mean, do you ever think why he chose this sin and not any of the tens of the thousands of other sins? I think it basically lies in the simple fact that homosexuals are typically given to more promiscuous behavior than heterosexuals. Sounds judgmental, but if you could do look at the studies, it shows that. The sad thing for us is here in America, the homosexual community is estimated to be This is probably an old statistic, but 1% or 2%, 3% of the population. Probably more today. But when you stop and you look at the certain privileges they're given, the promotion of their lifestyle in the open, demanding that people like you and I endorse them, accept them, and affirm them in what they're doing, They've taken homosexuality and they've taken it to a level that they equate it with racism. Even those at the highest levels of government are extending special favors to people who practice this sinful lifestyle. And they're obviously promoting the homosexual agenda. I think that it's important for us to understand where our nation is in all this. I just got a a letter last week from the Family Research Council. And they want to basically, President Obama wants to abuse his power to attack marriage laws in 33 states that legally stand for natural marriage only between a man and a woman. Last month, Eric Holder, the Attorney General of the United States, the highest law enforcement officer in the nation, made this stunning announcement at a homosexual rights fundraising dinner. Holder told the cheering crowd that he would impose same-sex marriage benefits on every state that refuses to knuckle under and recognize same-sex marriage. Here's how he plans to accomplish this goal. If two people of the same sex marry in one of the minority of states that have redefined marriage and live or reallocate to one of the 33 states that have laws upholding natural marriage, he will make sure they are recognized as married for federal purposes. He says, basically speaking on behalf of the U.S. president, he says, in every courthouse, in every proceeding, in every place where a member of the Department of Justice stands on behalf of the United States, they will strive to ensure that same-sex marriages receive the same privileges, protections, and rights as opposite-sex marriage under federal law. And then he made this chilling threat. All these steps forward are worthy of are worth celebrating. But I want to make one thing clear. They are only the beginning. They're not going to stop at that. I think that one day, our federal government will pass a law that says if you speak out against the sin of homosexuality in such terms, 
you can be charged with a hate crime. It's coming. And I think when you say, well, you know what? I beg to differ and I'm going to obey God more. (laughs) I'm more concerned about God, what he thinks, than your silly little laws. So I'm going to continue to say that homosexuality is a sin. Then they're going to look at things like nonprofit status. If you continue to do this, sorry, you're going to have to pay taxes on, as a church on everything you own, which would be very uh, hard for a lot of churches to deal with, to lose that nonprofit uh, tax status. So they got, so they think, and they probably do, some churches over a barrel. But I think it's important for us to understand that this is the world in which we live. Verse 26 tells us even the women are involved in this insidious lifestyle. I mean, we think of homosexuality as men, but it says there in verse 26, even, even the women are involved. And this is something that is sickening to God. It should be sickening to us. Now, with that being said, I'm not saying, you know, we go out and we're nasty and, and angry and, and mean to those who practice this lifestyle. That's not what we're called to do as Christians. We're called to reach out and love to them with the gospel of Christ, to, to share with them the truth of the gospel. We need to be willing to do that. We shouldn't run and hide. That's not what Jesus would have us to do. We need to be in much prayer for those who are in our government. But as the days go on, beloved, there's going to be a cry for tolerance. And it's going to reach the church. And I think it already has. You see denominations of churches that are approving same-sex marriage. But see, that's, that's what's happened. It's, it's come inside the church. There's a lot of mainline, even Christian denominations that are considering, accepting, ordaining, and marrying homosexual, homosexuals. And so you have to stop and you have to say, well, okay, that, if it's reached the church, then we know that our country has gone the extra mile down the, the road to the pit here. And so you see here, these attractions are sickening. And I'm not going to go into all the, the details of this. We, we understand what, what's going on here. But it's also settled in verse 27. It says, The men likewise gave up natural relations with women who were cons- consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves due penalty for their error. The choice of lifestyle It's a choice. The whole idea that some of these have individuals have some gene that's missing or chromosome, that's just medically false. Scientifically, it's false. It's not not reality. But when God gives a man up to his choices of lifestyles, and the man will find that his attraction to and addiction to his sin will become stronger and stronger each day. They're literally overcome with their evil affections and desires. And what used to bring a little twinge of shame when committed now doesn't even phase them at all. All you have to do is look at the history of television. You know, back in the time when, when some of the 
older sitcoms that were on, Brady Bunch or whatever, they couldn't even show a toilet in the bathroom or they'd get in trouble. Not anybody on the toilet, just a, like a toilet bowl. They couldn't show it. It was, it was deemed that's not acceptable. And you look at some of the stuff that's on our TVs today, it just blows your mind how quickly we've fallen so far. That's the recompense of sin, being abandoned by God, enslaves man to his sin fully. It's as if God has somehow supernaturally been restraining the sinfulness in our country up until the last couple of years, and all of a sudden I think he just lifted his hand of restraint away because the things that are happening now, I mean, you can't even conceive. We have judges who are judging over cases where people have molested children or raped children even in some cases. And they give them a year, sometimes less than a year. And that's okay? It's just crazy. But the judgment is clear. I mean, it's, it's there. And they're, they're receiving the due penalty for their error. This isn't popular to talk about, but in the physical realm, in the homosexual, homosexual community, AIDS has been something that has been devastating. Sexual transmitted disease are rampant. And rather than telling people to stop this behavior, it's like, well, we got to just tell them about some kind of protection. I mean, when you have somebody like Magic Johnson, who was diagnosed with AIDS, HIV positive, and he admits to having relationships with as many as 20,000 women. I mean, that's just sick. I mean, how far can human depravity sink? But we also see the scope of it here in verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up, there we go again, to a debased mind. We see it in his decision here. At this point, man's rejection of God is complete. They give themselves more fully over to their own sins. And the more they do that, the less room they have in their minds for God. And eventually, he is rooted totally out of the picture by all their evil affections. And even their own gods that they invented become less and less necessary. The person who has come this far in his rebellion comes to think of himself as his own God. Debased mind, a reprobate mind, refers to something that has been put to the test but failed the test. It's been rejected. We see it here in the depravity. It's referred to refers to the refining of metals 
The idea here is that the men did not want God in their lives, and so he gives them over to the power of a totally depraved, reprobate mind. And at this point, they're, they're totally capable of any sin imaginable. As a matter of fact, some of them, they, they don't even know what to do, so they invent sins, it tells us. And Paul goes on here, and he tells us, through a list of sins that he, he made up for us, under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says 28, they did not see fit to acknowledge God, but God gave them up to a debased line to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil. That's basically subcategories of everything that follows. Unrighteousness and evil, that covers the spectrum of sin. And then he goes and he lists off here 20 some, or 18, whatever it is, uh, sins. And you may go through this list, it's going to be pretty hard for you not to see something on there that you've committed somewhere, but this isn't a complete list. This is, these are just areas of sinfulness. And he starts off there with covetousness, which is basically an appetite for things of somebody else. He moves right into maliciousness, which is ill will with a vengeance, malice. And then you have envy. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit. Envy is a spirit that not only wants the things that somebody else has, but basically begrudges that person of even having them. It doesn't only want to take the things away from that person, but it wants to make that person suffer because they have them. I say some of our government are a little envious of people today. Murder. That's kind of clear cut. We don't need to explain that. Strife. A spirit given to fighting. You ever met somebody who just likes to argue and fight no matter what it is? Deceit. Not being truthful, lying about things. He lists maliciousness again there. A spirit to do evil, envy, hatred. That basically has in mind the destruction of another person. He lists gossips. Slanderers. Gossip is, is basically... A gossip is somebody who seeks to harm another person's reputation. That's what a gossip is. A gossip is somebody who would say something about someone else with the intent of harming that person. You have to be careful with this one because sometimes we get this... This can be confusing. He says slanderers there, while the one above is done in secret. Slander is basically somebody who just does it right to their face, open. Slanders somebody. Talks bad about another person with the intent of harming them or harming their reputation. I did some research this last week on, on the idea of when is gossip gossip or when is gossip just sharing information. 
And it's important to discern the two here. I know that when we have leadership meetings or elders meetings, sometimes we talk about individuals in our church. Is that gossip? We're doing it so that we are all informed of what's going on in somebody's life. Maybe they're going through a hardship. Maybe they're, you know, whatever. Maybe they lost their job or maybe they're having issues in their, with their kids or relationship or whatever, their spiritual life. And not all the elders are on board, so we have to sit down and we have to talk openly about those things. That wouldn't be gossip. That's simply informing somebody of the situation. But if we were to sit down and with malice in our hearts, let me tell you about so-and-so, and with the idea of harming their reputation. Sometimes gossip isn't even true. That would be more probably under the slander kind of a, a sin. But just to share information with someone else doesn't mean you're gossiping. You have to go to the intent. You have to go to the motive of that person. Slander is the same thing, basically, but it's done in the open. He goes on there and he says, haters of God. I mean, this is a person who basically hates God and he he hates all the, the, the standards and restrictions imposed by God. And his goal is to basically be the God of his own life. That's that, that, that individual. It's the person that's on the team but doesn't play by the rules. Have you ever played with somebody that way? They don't play by the rules. I remember recently, I, I was just reminded of this, I was watching some of the college basketball games. I don't like, as a matter of fact, I hate basketball. I just don't like it at all. Sorry. But, I, you know, Stephen is Steven, the college ball player. But I kind of got into these games. I mean, some of these games, they go down to the millisecond, you know, at the end. And the, the underdog wins. And it's like, wow, these are pretty good games. I have the slightest idea what a foul is. I, would, I couldn't tell you. Something with, you know, hitting the other guy or something. It's like, come on. I mean, I was a kid in, in, in high school when we were in gym class and we were, had to play basketball and you had the skins. The kid guys would take their shirts off and the guys would keep their shirts on, the skins and the shirts. And you'd play each other. I was the kid that when the guy was going for the basket and it looked like he was going to make it, I'd just take him out at the knees. You know, I wasn't that big of a kid, but I could do that and figuring, hey, you know what? He didn't get the two points. I remember the coach yelling at me saying, this is not football, Converse. Give me 10 laps. You know, and I'd have to run around the gym, you know, because I, I just didn't get it. I'm thinking, well, you got to stop him from making these points. Well, that's not how basketball works. See, I was playing by my own rules. And nobody wanted to play basketball with me because they never knew what was going to happen. That's what happens to these people. They're haters of God. They're, they're their own God. They're making up their own rules. You can't, this kind of person doesn't discern right and wrong. Also, he goes on here, he talks about insolent, a life of defiance that, that kind of stares and, and looks at the face of God and dares him to get in his way. This kind of person is determined to have his own way at all costs. It doesn't matter. Haughty or proud, which basically exalts yourself. We know what scripture says about that. Boasters. This is somebody that's just a bragger. Brags about what he has or what he's done. Whether it's true or not is irrelevant. 
inventors of evil things. This is the kind of person who's basically tired of their sin. It's tired of sin as usual and they seek new forms of excitement and pleasure. Disobedient to parents. That's pretty obvious. You're not obeying your parents. Parents, watch out for a rebellious child. I'll tell you right now. Someone who's very rebellious are open to all kinds of sinful activity. Foolishness. It's kind of a person who refuses to learn by experience. They've rejected the truth. They've closed their eyes, their minds to it, and they just kind of put their hands over their ears and they close their eyes and go, la, 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 I don't want to hear it. They're foolish. Faithless, which would mean untrustworthy. Refers to people who will not keep their word. You just can't depend on them. Coming down to the end of the list here, he says heartless. This is kind of an abnormal affection and love. They're heartless. In other words, they're without human emotion. A lack of feeling for others. Or they abuse the normal affection and love. They become basic pawns for a man's own use and benefit, pleasure, purposes, whatever it might be. A lot of times this has with it the idea of sexual perversion, all those things. The last one there is ruthless. It's basically the absence of the consideration of any, anybody else's feelings but your own. What matters is basically your own pleasure, your own rights, not the pleasure and rights of others. I mean, that list is pretty broad. It encompasses basically every form of unrighteousness and evil that we know. That describes the world we live in today. That describes the world you've got to raise your kids in today. Well, the third thing here in closing is we not only see this in his decision and his depravity, but we also see in his destiny. Look at verse 32. It says, though they know God's decree... That those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. See, man knows in his heart where his sin will lead. As a Christian, when we sin, we know we're doing wrong. We can never say, oh, I didn't know. No, we know. The Spirit convicts our heart. We just choose to do it. (laughs) Choose to do it anyway. Against our own conscience, we go into whatever it might be, sinful activity. But here you see an individual who is pursuing his sin with everything within his power. And to make matters worse, he passes his sinful behavior on to others. And he encourages them to walk with them down this dark path of sin. And they even delight in those who live in the same lifestyle. That's very, depicts very clearly the sentiments in a lot of the homosexual movement today. I don't know about you, but 
I find this passage of Scripture troubling. You know, I think of my grandkids who have to grow up. I think of your children who have to grow up in the world we live in. It's harsh. But you know what? It's a true reality. And basically, the reality is simply this. Those that reject God will ultimately end up being rejected by God. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 says that they chose the door to God's activity in their lives, that, that, that they see their own conscience as being seared because they rejected the Lord. Even though he's a God of love, even though he's a God of mercy and grace and long-suffering, he's still a God of holiness, justice, judgment, and wrath. And you know what? There's a price to pay for rejecting him. That's very clear throughout Scripture. Can't get around that. I found this interesting. There's a species of ants in Africa that builds itself into these colonies and these nests. And they are are deep with these underground tunnels that connect all these nests. And down underneath the ground is where their young live and where their queen lives. And even though these ants may be a large distance, a great distance from their own nest, getting food and bringing it back, somehow they can sense when their queen is being attacked. And they become extremely nervous and and uncoordinated. And if by chance the queen is killed, they become so frantic and they rush around aimlessly until they just basically all die. And you know what? I think that's a perfect illustration, beloved, of a person who has rejected God in his life. Being unstable to find direction and peace apart from a human relationship with God, you end up rushing through life aimlessly, pursuing your sin until you too die and enter eternity. If you're in that place this morning, I want to invite you to come to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. If you know someone who's in that predicament, I pray that you would pray for them like you've never prayed for them before. Maybe you're saved here this morning. But some of these sins somehow have crept back into your life. You need to get right with the Lord. I invite you this morning to come before him. He's a God who will forgive. He's a God who loves you immensely. He desires the best for you. But it's only going to come on his terms. This isn't a bargaining table where you can bargain with God about your eternal soul. That's not how he works. Jesus spelled it out very clearly. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He who comes to me, right? will get to the Father. Won't be cast out. Father, we thank you this morning for this dark passage of Scripture that really is a commentary on our modern day society. And Lord, I know that we could have gone into a lot more of some of the descriptiveness of the 
the verses here, but, but Lord, I think we, we understand what's being said. And Father, we pray that you would, through your Holy Spirit, illuminate our own hearts, our own minds to the truth of your word, that we would come to understand that there's a world out there that's lost and on its way to hell. And Father, that we have the cure to their sin. We have the answer, which is Christ and his forgiveness, his love. And Lord, I pray that we would be bold in our testimony as we leave these four walls to a lost and dying world that's, that's caught up in sin. And Father, it, it doesn't paint a pretty picture for the future of our country. I know there's a lot of people still praying for revival, and I, I would be one of those people. But Lord, it just doesn't look like it's going to happen. But Father, we know that sometimes you perform what in our minds might be impossible. It's clearly not impossible with you. Father, I pray for our leaders in our country. I pray that you would bring them to their senses. That they would stop thinking that just government is the answer, that money is the answer, that power is the answer. Lord, that somehow you would direct their hearts to you. That you would cause them to repent of their ways and to turn to you for salvation. Father, we pray for people in our own church. Lord, I pray that you would continue to mold them and make them into the folks that you desire them to be and that they would be a bold witness for you in their workplace, in their home life, in the community. Father, that we would strive not to be hypocritical in our faith. That we would be transparent. And when people see who we are, that they would be amazed at the work that you've done in our lives. And Father, we just uh, pray for anyone here this morning who's yet to put their faith, their trust in you. Lord, if today is the day you desire them to come to you, I pray that you would make that clear to them. As only you can. That you would draw them with an un, unyielding invitation. And that they would be willing to bow their knee to you and declare you to be Lord and Savior. That they would ask you for forgiveness for the life that they lived. Father, we thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.